It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. What was the college admissions scandal? How did it impact the future of college admissions? And who broke the story of the scandal? We'll answer all of these questions and more on this edition of Getting Schooled. I'm Abby Hornacek. All right, this one is hard for me to talk about because it involves my alma mater. Back in 2019, a scandal rocked not only higher education, but also Hollywood. That's right, I'm talking about the college admissions scandal, which was later codenamed Operation Varsity Blues. The scheme offered parents of prospective college students the opportunity to buy their child admission to some of the country's top universities under the guise of athletic scholarships. Among some of these parents were Full House star Lori Loughlin and Emmy Award-winning actress Felicity Huffman. And while the operation worked for a while... This high price of admission came crashing down. So how did we find out about it? What was the public reaction to the scandal? And where is everyone now? Here to talk me through all of this is co-author of Unacceptable, Melissa Korn. And Melissa joins me now. Melissa, what's going on? Hey there, how are you doing? I am doing well. Um, I kind of mentioned to this to you before we got started, but... I'm both excited and not excited to talk about this because I went to USC. I did it the old fashioned way. Don't you worry. I was an athlete, but I swear I was an actual athlete. <laughs> uh, I also I had to get in um, on my own because, you know, sand volleyball was kind of up and coming at the time. So anyway, that's my background. And this is why I'm excited to talk about this, because so many people ask me what happened with the college admissions scandal. So you've done a lot of research. Can you just give me the background of what went down? And then we'll get into some specifics. Sure. So the whole scheme was masterminded by this guy, uh, Rick Singer, who was a college admissions counselor. Uh, he had two prongs to the scheme. So the first one had to do with standardized tests, and he would help students get uh, extra time on the SAT or ACT so that they could take the tests at a special location. And he kind of controlled that location by paying off the uh, test site administrators, paying off a proctor to fix the kids' scores or just give feed them correct answers uh, so that they would get higher test scores and boost their chances of getting into some of these really selective schools. The other prong has to do with athletics, which is what you were referring to a little bit there. <laughs> and in that one, Singer would pitch his clients as purported athletes, often kind of star soccer players or rowers or sailors. And he would work often with a coach or an administrator at the university to flag them as recruited athletes, which is kind of as close as you can get to a sure thing for admission to a school. And these kids often did not even play the sport at all. Is it true that they would Photoshop the students' faces onto athlete bodies? Yes, it is. Um, oh, my goodness. There are some, and, and it wasn't even like really high quality Photoshopping either. <laughs> I 
I feel like I need to start doing that in my regular life for my Instagram. Anytime I go on vacation, I just find like a model's body and put my face on it. Um, <laughs> that but, idea. But you yeah, know. they had um, Photoshop one kid or they took pictures of one kid um, in a in his pool in his backyard wearing water polo gear and then kind of put that made it look like he was actually doing an action shot in a in a pool like in a real game there were instances of um using other people's faces other people's pictures entirely and you know oh well their face is obscured so it doesn't matter we can just submit that photo as is things like that as well wow that is so crazy it's like going on a dating app and <laughs> and realizing that the person that is pictured is not the real person Wow. Okay. Mission so, version of catfishing. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, that's basically what was going down here. Um, so what schools did this involve? So um, I should say that the schools themselves said that they're the victims of this whole scheme, not that they benefited mm -hmm. from it, even though some of their employees earned money off on the side. Uh, so this affected a ton of really high profile, well-known, well-regarded schools, including your own alma mater, USC. Uh, All right, Melissa, we're just going to leave that one. We we talked about this. We're going to leave that one out of it. I'm just going oh, okay. <laughs> to be a very I'm short good. conversation if we do that. <laughs> um, so USC, UCLA, Stanford, Yale, Georgetown, UT Austin, Wake Forest. There was one coach who was involved. So it uh, covered a lot of folks at a lot of schools. So how did it work then? So let's say you go to USC to be on the road team, but you're not actually going to practice. How did people not, I mean, people eventually found out, but this, this went on since what, 2011? Is that what they, it's, it's been reported? It's been going on for that long? The, the criminal case went back to 2011, but we uh, were able to find some instances of potential wrongdoing, let's say, uh, before that as well. Okay, so I guess my question is, if these people weren't going to practice, how did they not get caught? There was an excuse for everything. So uh, perhaps they had um, an injury or they got in and then realized, oh, man, the commitment for this sport is just a little too much. I need to focus on my studies. So I'm going to remove myself from the team. I'm going to drop off the team. And frankly, there was nobody checking to make sure that the people who were on the roster actually showed up. Uh, and if the coach was in on it, they certainly weren't going to call attention to the fact that some purported player disappeared or never even appeared in the first place. So there wasn't any sort of check in the system to make sure that uh, the folks who were supposedly great athletes were actually contributing to their teams. And who did Rick Singer, what school was he affiliated with? Singer was not affiliated with any school himself. So he got his start originally at, um, as a basketball coach. And he uh, did some college counseling, kind of guidance counseling on the side up in Sacramento area. And then he just went off and this was his business, was college counseling, helping teens and their parents navigate the admissions process and helping them kind of figure out their brand, how best to put them forward in admissions you know, how they can get noticed by top schools. And he had a totally legitimate side of the business where he worked with kind of everyday teens, often wealthy everyday teens, uh, and would steer them toward a whole bunch of different kinds of schools. And then he also had this entire illicit menu of options. 
how did he know who to recruit? I know that you're not in his head, but I'm thinking about if, if you're a college counselor, uh, admissions counselor, and you go up to a school and you just go up to a random coach uh, and say, hey, this is what we're going to do under the table. We're going to we're going to you know be a little sketchy about this. But you'll get paid. How, I'm sure there were, had to have been people that said no, right? Uh, we, we believe there were some people who said no or who just kind of brushed him off, uh, including at Stanford, at least that's according to a Stanford report. So Singer, having been a collegiate coach himself, kind of knew a little bit about the system, knew other uh, coaches, you know, across uh, higher ed. He also knew how poorly coaches of these low profile teams were paid. So they're not making that much money. They're expected to be raising funds for their program, for the athletic department. They're, uh, nobody's really paying that much attention to them. You know, they're not being, their recruiting operations aren't being followed as closely as, you know, football teams recruiting is. There's no blog dedicated to, you know, who's the five-star recruit for, as the coxswain at the rowing team. <laughs> um, so he knew that, this was all kind of nobody would notice and that these coaches were under serious financial stress and that if he could kind of make it a little bit easier for them to raise the money, for them to earn some money themselves, uh, for one of his clients to get in, it seemed like a win-win. I guess what I don't understand, because my mom always says someone always tells. So if he went up to a coach maybe years ago and they said, no, I'm just so confused that nobody this guy. Yeah, um, that is somewhat shocking. And the whole scheme probably could have continued on had there not been this parent sort of affiliated kind of tangentially to the scheme who was being investigated for securities fraud. Right. Like it wasn't right, even the scheme itself that took it that went down. It was a side a side hustle that ended up leading prosecutors to this case. Okay. So yeah, that's what I want to get into because, you know, for the amount of years that, for the number of years that this went on for, how did they eventually get caught? Take me through that. So it is a fairly uh, convoluted chain of events here. So this uh, guy, this Los Angeles guy, Maury Tobin, was involved in a pump and dump stock fraud scheme. And he had agreed to cooperate with prosecutors uh, in Boston. And, you know, because he was cooperating, they needed to check and kind of make sure they knew all of the skeletons in his closet, because if he was going to be uh, their key witness in any sort of trial, they needed to know that they could trust him. So they came across some uh, bank transactions with some account in Connecticut and, you know, approached him about it. And uh, he acknowledged that he was paying a Yale women's soccer coach so that his daughter could get on the Yale soccer team and or get recruited as a player for the Yale soccer team and then get into Yale. So that then led prosecutors from Maury Tobin to the Yale soccer coach. They set up kind of a little sting. They, they arranged for them to meet in some hotel in Boston. And uh, the soccer coach mentioned Rick Singer and essentially was kind of saying, now, remind me, is this a deal that you and I created directly or are we doing this through Rick Singer? It's, you know, it's just so hard to keep track of all of these side deals, these, uh, you know, Ill illegal bribery cases going on. I just remind me who you're with. <laughs> it, it wasn't quite that explicit, but not that far. 
I'm laughing because it's just so ridiculous. But keep going, please. So then they, you know, they flipped uh, the coach. His name is Rudy Meredith. So they had him as a cooperator now. And then they, from there, uh, had him do recorded phone calls with Rick Singer and were able to build a case against Singer. And then they confronted Singer in that same hotel, actually, in Boston. And uh, they were able to get Singer to flip and to cooperate and to open up his Rolodex, if people have Rolodexes still. <laughs> and and essentially say, like, here is my client list. Here are all the families I did this for. Here are all the coaches I worked with. Here's all the evidence. So he, he handed did... them a fairly neat case. He did obstruct justice at one point, but overall, he ended up being a fairly uh, successful cooperator. See it, Melissa? Someone always tells. That's what I'm saying. Uh, Rick <laughs> Singer was the one to tell here. So what did he, what did Singer get in return for releasing his Rolodex of clients? So uh, when somebody agrees to cooperate with a criminal investigation, they usually are, they're not promised anything necessarily, but they are told, you know, if the information you give us pays off, right? If it leads to prosecutions against other individuals, other defendants, and there's, you know, we think that they were kind of good cases and they're sent to prison and things like that we might recommend a lighter sentence for you when it's your turn. So all of these parents, all these coaches were sentenced over a few years. Rick Singer didn't get sentenced until just this past January, a couple months ago. Uh, so he was kind of sitting there on the sidelines waiting to be sentenced with the hope that his, all of his cooperation would, would pay off. And even if the prosecutors had recommended a particular prison sentence, that didn't mean the judge needed to follow it. So it's a bit of a gamble, but the alternative is facing quite a bit more prison time. Well, I don't know Singer personally, but based off of what he did, it sounds like he's quite the gambler. So makes <laughs> sense. He is so, you said he just got sentenced in January. What happened with that? That was, uh, it was pretty fun, actually. I was up in Boston for it. Um, so Singer was sentenced to three and a half years in prison, uh, which is far less than the potential kind of absolute max that he could have faced. Uh, it was more than parents, more than coaches. Uh, but all things considered, a lot of people saw that as a fairly light sentence. Um, he is currently incarcerated and will will serve out his time in a federal prison. Sounds like uh, was it worth it? Then <laughs> three and a half years in a federal prison does not sound fun. Um, no, no, but, it does wow. not. <laughs> I saw so. Let's, as much as I don't want to get into this, um, let's talk about the USD case, because I feel like that just because of the high profile names uh, that were in the people who are involved, it sounds like that one kind of was the one that captured people's attention. So walk me through exactly when, what went down there. Right. So there's a few players involved with the USD case. Um, and on the uh, on the school side, Rick Singer had connections to a couple of coaches, including soccer and water polo. And he also had a connection to an administrator in the athletics department who kind of was the liaison between the athletics department and the admissions office. So she could add some names to the list of recruited athletes and say, hey, admissions dean, this person's fantastic. They'll be a great contributor to the team. You got to let them in. And there was a 
a, a financial exchange going on between her and Rick Singer uh, in order to do some of that. Now, one of the reasons USC kind of attracted so much attention in this case was because so many families were directed to USC uh, through Singer. They, you know, he had his connections there. He could make it happen. And he capitalized on that. Uh, USC has said they believe, you know, more than two dozen individuals who worked with Singer got admitted to the school. Uh, not all of them or their families were prosecuted. But this was over many years. These uh, kids were getting in and they didn't always know exactly how they got in. But sometimes they were uh, willing participants in the whole scheme. So, you know, they would apply to USC and there would be some part of their file that had a picture of them on, a, on a, an erg, a rowing machine, or their profile would detail this you know, list of accolades and um, competition wins and fast times and scores and whatever the sport might have been. And they, they would get in. And Singer would funnel money through his charity a 501c3 uh, from the charity to the coaches or the administrator, sometimes to the school directly or the, the family, the customer would send money to the school directly as well. Um, and they would get a tax write-off for it, right? Because they had done this through the, through the charity or through the school itself. So how can the school then say that they are the victims? If the money was being sent directly to the school in some cases, is it because it went through the charity? Right. So the the schools got money directly from families, also from through Singer's charity. They also got tuition dollars for the students who enrolled, right? Like these were not kids who were getting athletic scholarships. They were paying sticker price. So they ultimately made a lot of money off of this. But they said, you know, we were... Uh, a lot of them wrote victim impact statements when various coaches were being sentenced uh, to say, you know, this coach didn't give us their honest services, which is part of the legal charge that they were faced with, that they, you know, agreed to work for us and to be upstanding citizens and to uh, put our interests first. And they did not do that. They put their own interests first and undermined us and undermined our reputation and did harm that way. Now, the challenge is, how do you measure that type of harm? And how do you measure what was lost in all of this? Is it, you know, some kid who could have gotten in but didn't because one of these students did? Is it the, the legal fees that these schools had because they all had to lawyer up and do internal investigations? That was one of the big kind of wrinkles in this whole case was how exactly you determine loss and, and kind of who lost what. Yeah, that's a really good point. Those things are difficult to measure. And if this was happening with dozens of families, I mean, it's, that's, that's a lot to trace back. All right, we've got to step aside for a quick recess, but we'll be back right after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Now, was this one big, is each person being prosecuted in a separate trial or was there one giant college admissions fraud case or both? Yeah, so there... Um, 
on the day that the whole scheme was uh, exposed to the public and prosecutors filed charges, they filed charges against 50 individuals in March of 2019. That was a very busy day <laughs> for them and for me. And, yeah. you know, there were a few different kind of groups of people. There was a group of parents. There was a group of coaches. There was a group of singers, like employees. Uh, Singer, again, had already agreed to plead guilty. Rudy Meredith, the Yale coach, had agreed to plead guilty. But they had a couple of other kind of plea deal discussions happening very, very quickly. Most of these did not go to trial. The vast majority uh, pleaded guilty and were sentenced. And, you know, some of them went into prison, finished their prison terms, made it a long way through their community service hour requirement, uh, while some of the other kind of holdouts were still sitting there waiting to find out their fate. So they were able to kind of move on with their lives while other, other parents or coaches were, were still in the thick of things. So we had dozens of guilty pleas, uh, and those all happened individually, except for a couple of cases where there was like a husband and wife pair who were both charged and that got fun to cover. And then, uh, you know, there were a few parents who went to trial and um, a coach who went to trial and all of those convictions are, are on appeal. Um, one parent uh, who was charged kind of later in the scheme, there were a handful of parents charged later on, kind of as prosecutors learned more, they were like, well, we can also get this guy and this mom and, you know, that dad. So they added a few more folks to the, to the list, but they were all uh, kind of handled individually, except for the two fathers who went to trial together and were found guilty. And I think I was mentioning before some of the big names in this. You have Lori Laughlin, uh, Felicity Huffman. What ended up happening with their trials? So neither of them went to trial. Felicity Huffman was one of the first to plead guilty. Um, and she did so in you know, spring of 2019. And she was sentenced in September of 2019. Uh, she was sentenced to a couple of weeks in prison. Uh, which a lot of people saw as, you know, a slap on the wrist. But she also had paid the one of the lowest dollar amounts to Singer of anyone who was charged. And she, when given the choice to repeat the scheme, she did the testing scheme for her daughter. When she was given the choice to do it again for her younger daughter, she declined. So the judge kind mm -hmm. of gave her some credit for that. So she was, you know, kind of in and out fairly quickly. Um, Laurie Laughlin, uh, she and her husband were both charged, uh, Massimo Giannulli, and they held out for a very long time. They actually, uh, we, we had already uh, submitted our manuscripts and were getting very close to publishing our book when they agreed to plead guilty. And we uh, very quickly wrote up a few new paragraphs to kind of update the, the, um, the status of their case in 2020. But they agreed to plead guilty. They both uh, were sentenced to prison time, you know, months rather than weeks, like Huffman got. They had also paid Singer a lot more money for their involvement. They did this for both of their daughters, Bella and Olivia Jade. Yeah, Olivia Jade, it's, you know, she was on YouTube, right? It was YouTube that made her so big. 
Um, yes, I and- watched more hours of her YouTube videos <laughs> than I ever would want to. I know all about makeup contouring now. It's great. Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty good thing to know, though. I mean, I, if you could send those my way. Yeah, she, <laughs> I think she was actually in, I'm older than her, obviously, but she was in my sorority at USC, I believe. Um, oh, Zappa, so yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> I think she's, um, but it's not representative of the other people in the sorority, of course. But where are these kids now? I mean, not just Olivia Jade, but the kids of, you know, all the students who are involved in this. So that's one of the kind of sad parts of all this is, like I said before, a lot of these kids didn't know what their parents were doing behind the scenes. And they, you know, were absolutely humiliated. None of them were criminally charged. It was very clear. Prosecutors were setting out to say, and the judges agreed, that the parents that were the ones in charge of all this, even if some kids knew mom and dad were, were running the show. So they weren't criminally charged, but their names were splashed across papers. A lot of them were uh, confronted by their schools and each school responded a little bit differently. Some of them kicked the students out. Some of them gave the students a chance to kind of prove that they were qualified to be there had they not worked through Rick Singer, you know, that, you know, look, I took the ACT even before I connected with Rick Singer and did pretty well. So, you know, I can cut it here. Some of them had already graduated college when this happened, when the scandal uh, was exposed. You know, their degrees weren't uh, rescinded. Some of them were in graduate school and they continued on in graduate school. So some of, again, some of the students were kicked out. Some were kind of given notice. Some were able to stay in. A lot ended up transferring just because they needed or wanted a fresh start. Um, There were a number of students who were kind of in the process of applying to school, waiting to hear back from schools. Uh, When this was, when this all came out in March of 2019, their applications were all withdrawn and a lot of them ended up kind of holding off for another year before trying again to, to end up at college. I mean, one of the things with this case that I found a little heartbreaking is most of these kids would have been fine, right? They were mm-hmm. fine students. They were good kids. They would have gotten in somewhere and done okay. And their family connections would have helped make sure that they didn't fade into oblivion after graduation. And they would have been fine wherever they ended up. Yet now everything that they do has this asterisk attached to it, uh, whether or not they, they knew what their parents were doing for them. That's a really good point because you do. I mean, it's I feel like depending on who you are, you're kind of painted as this villain because you did this thing to get into college when other people did it the right way. But if they didn't know their parents were doing this, uh, that's a good point. I mean, that's sad for them. And it also probably shows them in a way that their parents don't believe in them to be able to get in on their own. Yeah. And I mean, it, you know, as I said, some of these, these kids were, a lot of them were perfectly good students. They weren't maybe A plus students, but they were good students or decent students. And having their names attached to this scandal, there's kind of an assumption that they were grossly underqualified to get into some of these schools. And that wasn't the case with everybody. How do you think, just from your experience in covering this and reporting on it, how do you think this was able to run so successfully for so long? Does it speak to maybe the corruption that some people have? Or I mean, what, what, do you, what do you credit that to? So parents weren't exactly inclined to tell their friends about this, right? They didn't want to admit that they were getting this extra help to get their kid into school. 
So it certainly wasn't going to make its way through the gossip mill. Of, it wouldn't make it very far. You know, maybe one parent would mention to another. Uh, there were a few times where Singer connected with a family kind of through an existing client, but not, not a ton, uh, at least among those who were charged. So, you know, parents weren't going weren't gonna to go running to the cops about this. Singer certainly wasn't. The coaches wouldn't because they were, you know, earning money off of this. The schools didn't know that it was happening around them. And I think one of the reasons it was able to go on for so long was that lack of oversight, right? That there was just this assumption that a coach wouldn't list somebody as a potential recruited player if they didn't think that that student would actually contribute to the team, right? They want to be winning. Why would they waste one of their recruiting spots on somebody who doesn't even play the sport? It just seems so ludicrous that no one ever thought to check. So there wasn't necessarily another layer of oversight where, you know, an athletic director had to confirm that this person actually played the sport and watched the tape themselves and, you know, checked with the high school coach and all that. That just wasn't happening uh, on any grand scale before. It is now at some schools, but even that, uh, you know, as the USC example shows, he was working with an administrator too, who the person who was expected to kind of confirm the authenticity of these kids, she was in on it. Yeah. If you get to enough people, I mean, you kind of have your own network and, and it stays within that network, especially if some of these kids didn't know, because I think about that all the time. I mean, kids are chatty, especially young kids, and they don't know sometimes the implications of certain things. So if they knew about it, maybe they told their friend or they say, oh, I actually like, guess what my parents are doing. But to your point of maybe not all of them knew that probably helps the parent and that probably helps keep it secret for longer. Absolutely. Uh, there was one instance where uh, one of the teens had kind of mentioned to some friends that, uh, you know, he had taken the ACT at home and that, you know, seemed seemed odd. He had mentioned it to a few people and uh, a kind of a college counselor, a test prep person actually reached out to the ACT and said, you know, this kid is saying this happened, trying to raise red flags like, hey, if this was real, that's shady. And if it wasn't, then he didn't understand what he just did. You know, are students allowed to take this at home under certain circumstances? And the ACT just kind of dismissed her her concern pretty quickly and didn't it didn't go anywhere. But that was one of the few times that someone almost almost pulled the plug on the whole thing. Wow, I didn't know that happened. So is there any reason that you know of that the ACT didn't say anything or just kind of dismissed it so quickly? So I think part of it was, you know, she reached out to them initially on Twitter uh, and had a little exchange. And, you know, it wasn't her job to track down seven people at ACT to report this. So she tried to make some noise and let them know. And when they weren't super engaged or responsive, it just kind of disappeared. She had other things to do. Uh, yeah, that tracks. <laughs> also, if someone, someone randomly reaches out to you on Twitter, I mean, you know, you don't know how much validity is in that, you know. Um, right. Unfortunately, just because I'm sure a lot of people probably reach out to ACT. All right, we've got to step aside for a quick recess, but we'll be back right after this. What What do you think this reveals about you know the college admissions process, and are there anything, any things rather in place now to prevent this from happening in the future? So I'll start with the second part first. Um, There is a little bit more oversight now than there had been. 
But the college admissions process is really based on trust. There is just an assumption that students are, you know, sharing their best selves with an admissions office, but that they're not outright lying about who they are. And mm -hmm. they, have to they have to sign usually a statement saying that the information they've submitted is, is true. And, you know, they could lose their spot if they're found to be lying. And that would be enough of a risk for them not to, not to fabricate entire athletic extracurricular hobbies. So there is still that, that trust baked in. And admissions offices don't have the bandwidth. They don't have the resources or time to go and call the retirement home where someone says they volunteer to confirm that they actually volunteered 20 hours a week and not just two or whatever it may be, right? No one's going to go do that. So that's still there. Um, the athletics departments generally have clamped down at least a little bit on uh, the, the recruiting and making sure that there's another person kind of confirming that the recruit plays the sport, that they show up when the season actually starts and they are part of the team. Some schools put in place some restrictions on uh, fundraising for coaches and kind of when they can do that in relation to when the recruiting calendar is. So there, there, there's some new checks in place, but the system ultimately remains very similar. I will say the testing scheme would be a lot harder to pull off now and also frankly, unnecessary because so many colleges now don't require SAT or ACT scores. Mm -hmm. uh, so you wouldn't, they don't need to go through all that rigmarole to get a higher score. They could just not submit a score at all. Yeah, I woo, must be nice to not have to take the ACT or the SAT these days. <laughs> um, so on your, on your other question about kind of what does this say about, about college admissions, you know, I've been covering various parts of higher ed for over a decade and it, still shocks me sometimes how much parents and their kids, frankly, oftentimes more the parent than the kid, how tightly wound they are, how much they associate admission to a particular school with their success and their value as a human being, right? You got into Yale, therefore you are um, a better person or you are a better parent because your kid got in there than the, the family whose kid got rejected. And there is this, you know, frenzy. And we, in the book, we use the term blood sport at one point. And it really is this obsessive, fierce competition that brews in these little pockets across the country, really wealthy pockets of the country. And it's incredibly unhealthy, clearly, that any parents were willing to go to these lengths to try to help their kids get into a particular school. It says so much about the power of the brand name of these schools, the assumption that everyone else has an edge, so I need one too. Nobody who knows higher ed well was under the illusion that it was, you know, a, a pure meritocracy in, in college admissions. But this scheme really brought to light how corrupt and corruptible and unfair the entire system is. Yeah, that's really unfortunate. And it, and it's crazy because that, that's always a conversation, right? I mean, you sometimes you look at a student and you're like, wow, their their test scores, scores are amazing. They are 4.0 student. They have all these extracurriculars and they don't get into a school. And you're like, how did they not get in? How did this person get in instead? I mean, obviously, there are so many factors that play into college admissions, but it is an interesting thing to observe. And especially, I'm sure for you, 
doing this for, you know, more than a decade, it's, you've learned a lot. Hopefully I won't get to that level of frenzy when my own kid is ready for school. I've got about a decade <laughs> still, so we'll see. There you go. Things will probably look a lot different in 10 years. Absolutely. Um, last question I have for you. I mean, I, I feel like we covered so much. So if there isn't anything, then that's all right. But I'm, I'm curious if there's anything that you learned during this that most people don't know about this case. Oh, man. Hmm. I got to think about that for a second. Our book gets into so many details of kind of how the scheme built up over years. I think one thing that um, a lot of people don't know is just how charismatic many people saw Rick Singer to be. They mm. thought he was a very smooth operator. And some people that rubs them the wrong way. Other people that's like, wow, I am going to follow whatever he says I should do. So we have some examples and some scenes in the book where he's giving these talks to clients of uh financial management firms of these investment management firms, you know, private wealth clients. So their their richest clients would come and hear Rick Singer do a talk about college admissions. And the relationship between places like Morgan Stanley and Rick Singer were pretty shocking. You know, not the company at large, but an individual advisor at Morgan Stanley would recommend, would refer families to Rick Singer. Things like that was quite surprising. And it just goes to show that when you're involved, when you're at these high levels of the socioeconomic ladder, um, you can have access to anything and anyone. And there's always somebody to recommend, right? There's someone to take care of everything for you. So I think learning a little bit more about how smooth he was and how kind of charismatic Singer was considered to be by many, and then how he uh, ingratiated himself in these in these circles of high net worth individuals was really quite fascinating. That's a great answer, and I I, I didn't know if you were going to come up with something because we did cover a lot of things. But I think what people are interested in in this, especially any fraud case, is the person pulling it off, right? Because it almost it speaks to the human psyche. It's like, why are people falling for this? Or you know, when you think about the Tinder swindler, Adam Newman, or you know, there there are so many. There are so many different people that, you know, others blindly follow and mm -hmm. they trust for some reason. So you bring up that he had kind of this charismatic character. Um, you know, he's he probably lured people in that way. Yeah. I mean, Singer is a fascinating character. He character, human being. right? Um, <laughs> but he uh, had this frenetic energy and was never never just wanted to sit still, never satisfied. He was always on to the next project, juggling eight things at once. Um, and he wasn't doing this all for the money. Like he didn't spend the money in exciting ways. He didn't go on lavish vacations. The money was just a sign that he had succeeded, that he had won. So he just kept kind of banking the money. Um, and, and, you know, he, for years, exaggerated about his own biography Knew, he knew a lot about higher ed and a lot about college admissions, but he also was wrong on a lot of things, but he said it with such conviction that people would just take mm. it hook, line, and sinker. They say if you walk confidently, people will follow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so I actually thought of one more question What, what that, uh, when you said that. You said that the, the money was kind of more a sign that he won. 
what happened to all that money? Did he have to give any of that back? In any, is it even measurable? Yeah, so Singer did have to forfeit his ill-gotten gains. So he sold his fancy house in Orange County, California. He His bank accounts were pretty much cleared out by the feds. And some of the coaches who took money for themselves rather than for their schools also had to give back the money. Um, there was a, a fair number of real estate deals that went down pretty quickly after this, uh, after the charges because the, these folks needed the money for their legal fees and also because they owed the government a lot. Uh, some had to refile tax forms uh, because they had uh, fudged on their taxes a bit with these quote unquote donations. Uh, but yeah, Singer is is not a wealthy man at this point. <laughs> right. I mean, and, and he's in prison, so he's eating prison food. Uh, Melissa, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time for anyone who's listening to this. Her book is called Unacceptable Privilege to See and Making of the College Admissions Scandal. So make sure you check that out. But don't judge my alma mater. That's the only thing. Just don't judge me. Um, Melissa, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. All right. If you missed anything from class, these are my office hours. And here are some top takeaways about the college admissions scandal. Number one, this whole thing basically started with a man by the name of Rick Singer. He was a college admissions counselor who orchestrated the scheme by paying people off to fix standardized testing scores, getting students extra time, and also pitching his clients as reported athletes when they clearly were not. Sometimes it went as far as photoshopping a student's head onto an athlete's body. Number two. Authorities heard about Singer when an unrelated case involving a pump-and-dump stock fraud scheme led the key witness to reveal he was paying a Yale soccer coach so that his daughter could attend school. From there, the authorities flipped the coach, then flipped Singer, who handed over his list of clients who were paying to have their kids in these schools. And number three. Melissa mentioned that many of the kids didn't know this was going on, so it really is unfortunate for them because their names were dragged through the mud. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast on the college admissions scandal. For more podcasts, you can go to foxnewspodcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this one on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen and leave us a review. This has been Getting Schooled with Abby Hornacek on the Fox News Podcast Network. Class dismissed. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.